Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 16th. And I am speaking from San Francisco, California. It's lunchtime here. And the sun is shining. It's always shining, of course, in San Francisco. I think Ronald Reagan probably said something like that, if not about San Francisco, about California and America. But the news does seem uh, uncharacteristically good on this warm uh, November lunchtime, at least from the perspective of California. Both New York and California are now reopening. In fact, I think they decided to reopen yesterday, June 15th. So we're all able now to go outside. Our president or your president, a certain Joseph Biden, is suggesting in his trip to uh, Europe that America is back. He's taken the message to Brussels. He told the Queen of England that. And now I guess he's telling Vladimir Putin, and even Putin is accepting this. He says today, and this is from Fox News, the most reliable of of media sources, uh, Putin said no hostility in the Biden meeting. So we're back to the old America of uh, pointless uh, summits between US and Russian or Soviet leaders in which they say nothing, but nothing changes. Things are changing, though, in America, at least from a progressive point of view. Lena Khan now is running the FTC. So finally, we have some muscle in um, in Washington, D.C., in taking on Silicon Valley. So it seems as if everything is getting better, or perhaps not. That was a little trick, because some people think that there's still a crisis in America. My guest today, an old friend, he's been on the show several times before, the very distinguished Atlantic writer, uh, George Packer, had a piece in the Atlantic, uh, I think it's the cover story uh, for the July-August issue, How America Fractured into Four Parts. It's from his new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal. George, speaking to me from sunny Brooklyn. I hope it's sunny out there, George. Is it as warm and optimistic on the East Coast as it is on the West Coast on this uh, mid-July day? Uh, You said November a couple minutes ago, and now you said July. We're actually in June. Oh, Um, well, those are Freudian errors. It's definitely mid-June. November was a, a dark and stormy month. It is beautiful outside. It's perfect weather. And we may even be a couple steps ahead of California in terms of getting back to life. Brooklyn. You're never uh, a couple of steps ahead I'm of sorry. us on the East Coast, George. You should I'm know. Because you're originally from California. You know. I am. I'm a California native. And um, I, I still feel like a Californian in the East. But Brooklyn looks like some European city with sidewalk cafes everywhere and a tremendous amount of street life and millennials rollerblading and then skateboarding. And it's, um, yeah, there's a sense of uh, real buoyancy in the air. People aren't wearing masks outside much anymore. Um, so, so George, so maybe the, but, 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 but then yeah. you're the one who now is making us all miserable. You you're saying that um, how America has fractured mm-hmm. into four parts and you have this new book out last best hope. 
America and Crisis uh, in uh, Renewal. Um, you write at the beginning of the book, I am an American. No, I don't want pity. What's gone wrong here then? Well, the moment feels sunny, but the underlying conditions are still there. The All the troubles that the pandemic brought to the surface, maybe they've receded back down below a bit, but they're still there. Massive inequality, deep political division, so bitter that um, we don't even really feel as if we can live together anymore. Some people want to secede. Some people want to have whole regions broken off. Um, we have a, a government bureaucracy that has done pretty well with vaccine distribution, but that chronically fails to, um, to be able to handle big problems. We have a Congress that can't pass basic legislation. We, Biden has gotten one bill through after what, five months, um, and I'm sure he wished he had more. Um, and yeah, the, those conditions are still are still there. I think personally, Americans are probably, unless they're sick or mourning someone or just struggling to survive, are probably feeling pretty optimistic right now. But I think the long trajectory is still a dangerous one. Last well, George, let's, let's, let's take a step back. You've been on the show a couple of times before. Um, mm -hmm. You were on last year, uh, and we asked, can we blame everything on Trump? And you suggested that we can't, that there are profound structural issues um, at the heart of, of both the cause and consequences of the Trump regime. And you were on back in 2013 uh, talking about your book, the, uh, the Unwinding, which was in many ways a well, the subtitle was An Inner History of the New America, in which the same themes you brought up. So America in June, I'm trying to get the uh, the, the month right now, June 2021, is, um, is, is, is part of this, at least in your view, there's a structural crisis, isn't there? I think what I found in my reporting for The Unwinding eight, nine years ago um, was a, a sense of long-term decline that the Americans I was talking to felt. They felt disconnected from institutions, from uh, government, from companies, the media. They felt the system was rigged against them, that the middle class was disappearing. None of this is new. It's been going on for a long time, but it's kind of reached a crisis point in the last few years. I think it helped to produce Donald Trump which accelerated the crisis. Now we've stepped back from the brink. Doesn't feel like we're about to commit national suicide. But um, as I've said, that those underlying structures are still weak and the institutions are still unable to function the way they should in supporting people and giving them a better life uh, and in connecting us as, as citizens. So last uh, George, hope, uh, one of one of your chapters is called Make America Again, yeah. rather obviously a play on the America Great Again. What, in your view, was America? What 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 what, what captures its spirit, its uniqueness? How, how, how what do we want to return to or get forward to? Because I know you're not a nostalgist. Yeah, that line actually comes from a Langston Hughes poem from 1935. Um, and so I use it, yes, in order to poke, make America great again. What Hughes meant was 
make America what it should be, not go back to anything because we've never been what we should be. To me, the core of America is the promise of equality, uh, which is the first keyword in the Declaration of Independence and which Alexis de Tocqueville diagnosed in his great study of American democracy uh, as the, the central driving passion in Americans. The thing we are most motivated by is a desire to be equal with others. I, I think it's, I love that bit of the book, but let me add to that. I think you're saying, George, that um, you're not presenting de Tocqueville as a socialist, which of course he isn't, or even as a, a left-wing liberal. You're, you're suggesting it's the spirit of equality that drives, um, that the, the, the Tocqueville said he saw. Yeah. And of course he was coming from a a France of deference, an aristocratic France, and uh, your your um, uh, you you quote Whitman at the, the beginning of the book. Um, this is the quote: "I speak the password primeval. I give the sign of democracy. By God, I will accept nothing which all cannot have their counterpart of on the same terms." So, it seems as if you're suggesting yeah. America is an attitude. Yeah, that Whitman quote is wonderful because Whitman really was the poet of equality. And so much of Leaves of Grass is about the, the sense of brotherhood that comes from feeling like everyone's equal and being able to go anywhere and to speak with anyone on familiar terms. And you're right, Tocqueville came out of a aristocratic society. Um, so his frame of reference was that there's a hierarchy, that people are, have to defer, that there's a social rank that determines almost everything about your life from birth to death. He came to America and found that's just not so. Feudalism had been erased in the creation of this country. A different inequality was very much in place in Tocqueville's time. Slavery still... Uh, blighted half the country. And in the other half, black people were certainly not considered or treated as equals. The passion for equality was there everywhere. And it, its denial is what creates social conflict, the civil war, the struggles of the Great Depression, the 1960s, and today. I feel that when whole classes of Americans are denied what you rightly call a kind of spiritual status that makes them, puts them on the same level with their fellow citizens. It doesn't mean everyone has exactly the same income or wealth or amount of goods. Although when wealth becomes grossly unequal, the kind of equality Tocqueville does mean, equality of status, of rights, of opportunities, is denied. So vastly unequal wealth, like we see today with our our tech monopolies um, and our low wage. You, uh, you were one of the early people to observe in the unwinding. You had a whole chapter on uh, our old friend Peter Thiel warning us of what was happening in America. Of course, now with Jeff Bezos worth almost $200 billion, things are much, much worse. Exactly. And I think when economically things get so lopsided and rich, you know, the billionaires pay almost no taxes, as we just learned last week. Um, the sense of equality is mocked and it leads to a kind of frustration and rage that expresses itself in a lot of really 
uh, poisonous political uh, tendencies and and cultural tendencies in rhetoric, in the way people talk to each other, in the way they behave, in the lies they're willing to believe, in the performances they're constantly putting on. I really do see this this thwarting of of this passion for equality that Tocqueville saw as at the heart of so many of our problems. So I'm going to bet you know the yeah. more I the more I read the book and thought about actually what you're saying, the more. Uh, and it's not a pessimistic book, and you make it very clear that you're not really that pessimistic about America. But the more optimistic I became, because this, what what you call this uh, this 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 fragmentation of America into four parts, um, I want you to talk briefly about those four parts. But they're each a reaction to this increasingly self-evident discord between American ideals and its reality. Isn't that fair? So I'm not sure that the, yeah. the fracturing is necessarily a bad thing, but talk very briefly about the four parts of America today and how they're each reacting to America's new reality. So we're used to thinking of the country as divided into two, red and blue, and it's absolutely true. And it becomes more true with every election the divisions get deeper and they're sort of, they seem semi-permanent right now. Um, but if you look beneath them, there are really more than two dominant ideas about America. There, I think there are four, there are probably more than four. And what I have is a picture of the four I see as dominant and no doubt it leaves out millions of Americans who don't identify with them, but those Americans don't have the, the cachet, the influence, to um, to compete and win in this war of narratives. The first that I identify is free America, Andrew, which is the has been the, the most powerful in my adult life. It's Reagan's America. It's the America of consumer capitalism, of deregulation, of low taxes, of, of monopoly uh, businesses, and of a vision of society that's atomized. We're individuals, each pursuing our own uh, desires and destinies. And we really don't owe each other very much. And government is really there just to do a minimum job of, of providing public safety and a few other goods, but really to get out of the way. Um, that was a powerful narrative coming out of the 1970s, because in so many ways, government had failed in those years and the economy had failed and it's it was very right. easy to convince so, so is that reagan should we call that a neoliberal america is that a one word that could that's, be used that's a that's a new a new newish term that i don't use just it seems a bit jargony to me i i'm trying to find terms that are easy to grasp and that kind of speak right. to value. Okay, well, so, so we have one, we have Reagan's America, and then what about the other three? three? Yeah, so Reagan's America, I call free America, and that's the value it, it expresses. The second is smart America, which is the Clinton's America. It's the America of the educated class, the professional. You and I. Yep, that's the America I've lived in all my adult life. It's uh, credentialed, it believes in the importance of higher education and really the right higher education. And it says, if you, you know, clear these barriers and through your talents and your efforts and maybe a bit of luck, then your your path to success is going to be pretty secure. It's um, the America. We've had many shows about this. We had Michael Sandel on the show. We had Daniel Markovitz. 
Uh, we had uh, Michael Lind, who you quote, I think you quote Markowitz as well in the book. Yes. It's, it's an America of Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Berkeley, of law schools and uh, credentials. It's In a sense, it's a technocracy, isn't it? Exactly. And those three writers you just mentioned, Lind, Sandel, and Markowitz, are, I think, really important uh, and have been influential on me in identifying the meritocracy uh, as a, a new kind of aristocracy. The word was coined by an and English. An annoying aristocracy because they're not aware of it. It's not like Tocqueville's aristocracy where everything you do from your clothing to your food to your speech to your manner uh, it's an aristocracy that refuses to accept itself as an aristocracy. That's what's so frustrating about it. Exactly. It believes it got there uh, on the merits. And therefore, if you didn't make it, it's your own fault. And it means that you don't really owe anyone anything. Um, you, you don't have that noblesse oblige. You don't even have to be a hypocrite the way uh, a 19th century French aristocrat had to be. You don't have to pretend to care about um, the, the lower classes. All so, you need to do is blame Donald Trump, right? It's yeah, it's a pretty it's a complacent narrative. It's powerful. It really sh has shaped our culture through many through many years. But it's so let, let, let's so so we've got the merit so we've got the technocracy meritocracy, we've got yeah. uh we we've got Reagan's America. What about the other two? Yeah, so those are free and smart America. The other two are rebellions against them from in some ways from within the same political world. The third is real America. It's a phrase Sarah Palin used in 2008 to describe those, basically the white Christians in the heartland who, as she said, grow the food and fight our wars and make this country great, the patriotic Americans. So it's, it's Trump's America. I think of Palin as John the Baptist to Trump. Mm. It's and you, you featured Palin quite prominently, actually, in the book. Uh, I haven't read a book with so much Palin for ages. I know. She's, at this point, a failed celebrity, which is one of the most pathetic things you can be. But at the time, she was something new. She brought a new idea, although she didn't have any ideas. She herself was an idea. And it was the idea of white identity politics, not Reagan's uh, ideology of of limited government and, and pro-business, low taxes. Those were the old Republican ideas. Palin didn't speak to that. And her her people, the people who worshiped her, flocked to her rallies, didn't care about that. It hadn't done anything for them. Basically, real America was declining at that point. It was already in a state of yeah. you know, hollowed out towns, post-industrial lands. What we, we on the coast called flyover flyover America. We've again yeah. had many shows about this, both sympathetic um, and, 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 and critical. And, and then the fourth America, George? So the fourth is also a rebellion. If, if real America is a rebellion against the ossified libertarianism of free America, the fourth is just America, which is essentially the social justice movement which is a generational movement. It's the millennials and those younger, and they've rebelled against smart America. They've rebelled against their parents, the meritocrats. And they've said, you promised us that America was flawed, but getting better all the time. And if we just went to college and took on all that debt um, and worked hard, 
that we would have the same life as you. In fact, a better life because it would be more enlightened, more diverse and tolerant. When in fact, the smart, uh, just America sees the country as locked into a permanent state of, of caste with one group oppressing another. So it's a generational rebellion, perhaps summed up by, we, we had Jill Filipovich on the show recently. She seems to have become a very articulate spokesman for this American. I know Jill, and she is, uh, I think she is a Gen Xer um, or perhaps a, an older millennial, and I am an old, a late boomer, um, a young boomer. So she and I are, yeah, in these two generations, which actually have a lot in common. <laughs> the boomers and millennials hate each other right now. They write books about each other, but each one is a big influential generation that came along and thought we're the first generation ever. No one has ever had these thoughts and feelings about life. The yeah. old people don't understand. Let's get rid of them. They're, they're, they're oh. irrelevant. So oh. there's something kind of <laughs> reminiscent about the 60s in what's happening right oh. now. I mean, it's interesting, George. You say that America continues to um, inspire the world. Whatever happening in America, America remains the beacon. I, I just finished... Um, Andrew O'Hagan's novel, a Scottish writer, Mayflies, which is a wonderful novel for people who haven't read it, want to get actually O'Hagan on the show. But it, it's 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 a it's a novel about growing up in the eighties, and he shows how influential American movies were on young Scottish men, particularly The Godfather and all the the Scorsese, De Niro stuff. And I think it's your Tocquevillian observation that. You know, what What De Niro, Taxi Driver, Scorsese, The Godfather, they all captured was American irreverence to authority, unwillingness to compromise. And it seems like they're coming back to your, your fourth category. The biggest influence now of America on the rest of the world is Black Lives Matter. There's a huge debate, I'm sure, as you know, in Europe about whether or not footballers should be taking a knee during the European Championships. So has some has anything really changed? It's just rather than De Niro, now it's Black Lives Matter, and America continues to lead the world culturally and philosophically. I think that's absolutely right. We've lost our political authority. Joe Biden, as we speak, is touring Europe saying America's back, and I think European leaders would be wise to think for how long. Do you mean all of that was just a mirage, that Trump business? Is he really alive, Biden? Or is he, uh, <laughs> is he an effigy of something, of, of the meritocracy? No, he's pre-meritocracy. I think of Biden as belonging to none of my four narratives. He's a, he's a Roosevelt <laughs> Truman Democrat of a stripe that I find very appealing. He is alive, but I think he's... He's speaking... the last member of that class, though. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. He's speaking for an America that I don't think really exists in the world anymore. We cannot lead by example. Our example has become so badly flawed. But we, are, but, but, but we have. I mean, isn't isn't the point? Um, uh, is isn't the point, George, that rather than now the youth of the world, rather than obsessing over over De Niro and The Godfather and Michael Corleone, um, they're inspired by Black Lives Matter. America continues yeah. to lead the world. I was going to say, I think in culture, we still have this immense, what is called soft power. We still have huge influence. Um, the fact that there were protests from Seoul, South Korea to Tunis during the George Floyd uh, protests last summer shows that the world still looks to us and 
France is now in having a nervous breakdown over whether American identity politics is taking over France. Uh, Great Britain often seems to be just like a week behind us in every um, social controversy that comes up. So yeah, we still have that influence, but look at where the world's politics has gone. It's not gone toward American style democracy. It's gone away from it toward authoritarianism, which happened here as well, um, and toward illiberalism. So all the, the founding ideals of the Declaration and the Constitution seem almost to have worn out their attractiveness for India, for Turkey, um, and, and, and for China, which once had, remember the goddess of liberty in Tiananmen Square. There are dissidents in China, but they've really been muted. And the authoritarianism of the ruling party is what is inspiring a lot of uh, other regimes around the world. So there we've really lost our ability to lead. And we, my feeling is we, will, we won't get it back until we renew ourselves. And that's the project of my book. Wouldn't it be fair yeah. to say, George, that we are renewing ourselves? Uh, never let a, a show go without quoting Bob Dylan in mm. his new, uh, new album, um, a wonderful song, I Contain Multitudes. And he has this wonderful line in, in, in the song, just like Anne Frank, like Indiana Jones and then British bad boys, the Rolling Stones. I go right to the edge. I go right to the end. I go right where all things lost and made good again. Isn't that, in a way, the story of America and your 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 four Americas? They're all legitimate. They're all credible. They all reflect socioeconomic and cultural reality. And they're all fighting over America in a good democratic fashion. What's wrong with that? Well, that line, I contain multitudes, that comes straight from Whitman, doesn't right, it? Right, right, exactly. That's why I quoted it. Yeah. I don't quite go with you, Andrew, on fighting each other democratically. I mean, we've got a whole political party driven by one of those narratives, Real America, which says we're not going to respect the democratic process at all. We're not going to believe in election results. We're going to lie about them. We're going to spread conspiracies until three quarters of Republicans in this country believe the election was stolen. And that's going to poison every election in the coming years because it will it will be considered fraudulent if it goes the wrong way are people really willing to to accept losing and fight another day um by the fair rules that everyone used to accept with a little corruption here and there no i'm worried i think right now yeah it, it, biden has brought some stability and some hope his his domestic policy gives me a lot of hope i think it's a policy of equal america but, uh, but, but, but the fights are not well, over. Are not over. <clears throat> yeah. I'm not sure I, I buy it. You, you, you write at the end, and you do spend a lot of time talking about how to fix America, how to make America, America again. You say, we have to make changes at the largest and most personal levels in economic structures and in habits of thinking and acting. And then you have in italics, we have to create the conditions of equality and acquire the art of self-government. I mean, that's your position. It's Michael Lynn's position. It's Thomas Frank's position. But as Thomas Frank has argued, not everyone believes in that, particularly the people who are less equal. It's ironically seems to be the position coming out of the meritocracy, out of the techno technocratic class. 
I, I mean, the Republicans think... who are increasingly becoming a, a working class party don't seem to be particularly sympathetic to that argument. I don't know about that. I, the, there are a lot of Republicans who now see monopoly power as a real threat to uh, individual freedom and equality. You're, you're hearing that a lot from both members of Congress and ordinary people. Um, I think the fact that $15 minimum wages keep getting passed in red states shows that whatever the cultural flashpoints, whatever the culture wars that keep raging on um, may have to say, the sense that working people do not have a fair deal in this country is pretty widespread, especially among working people. So I, I wouldn't go quite that far and say um, that there are large numbers who don't think equality is a, an issue in this country. I think it's kind of always there, whether it's the word itself is used or not. And uh, it's behind a great deal of the uh, the unease and the, yeah, the malaise that seems to well, keep... You, uh, and, 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 and I'm quoting you again. You say the first big step is to repair the safety net so that workers and families are no longer at perpetual risk of falling through and drowning as millions have in the pandemic. This means essentially extending the New Deal to more Americans in more areas of their life. I mean, let's say that happened, which I don't necessarily disagree with you. That's the kind of thing that might lead to civil war, isn't it? It's interesting because there's so many Americans who both hate Obamacare, uh, which they see as you know socialism, and also um, are fighting like hell to keep it in their state or for their family. So there's like a a weird dissonance between the political rhetoric that says government is the problem and the way people feel, which is um, government's taking care of the wrong people. It's not taking care of me. And that doesn't mean they don't want government. It means they resent that they think government is giving things away to people who don't deserve it, but they don't want it to disappear. In fact, a great majority of Americans want taxes to be higher on the wealthy um, and want spending on education to go up. These are actually widely popular positions, uh, including among Republicans. Um, so I, I again, I, I think equality remains this fixed star in the American firmament. And when it is so obviously thwarted by the kind of class structure that we have today, which reminds me of the, the Gilded Age of 100 years ago or 120 years ago, um, it it does not lead to social peace. It leads to a lot of conflict. Going back to Tocqueville and to Whitman, as you say, it's a question of attitude rather than reality. So perhaps, as you suggest in the book, the real challenge is uh, challenging what you call the new aristocracy of smart America. Um, so that, you know, and that's exactly what Trump did. Um, yeah, uh, explicitly, unambiguously, unashamedly. Um, and yes. we've often, and I think you've talked to me about the next Trump is going to be a lot more dangerous than Donald Trump himself, who's a clown and a charlatan. Um, do we need to get this right? Does the new liberal aristocracy need to radically reform itself if we're to avoid a more dangerous, perhaps a, a proto-fascist Trump? Yeah, this is where smart and just America are really doing the work of their opponents for them. Smart America with its uh, credentialism, its um, contempt for the uneducated, its 
really it's lack of concern for what you called flyover country, which feels in some ways like less of their own country than London and Paris um, and Berlin do. And just America, which for all of its really uh, idealistic and necessary um, corrections to the, the evils of American history for calling attention to them, it creates this vocabulary and this almost quasi-religious um, test for how you can be a virtuous person, which is alienating and disqualifying to the vast majority of us, and which doesn't bring people in. It keeps them out. It shames them. It makes them Do feel- Do we have any examples, George, of you, you say that these policies will, um, will enjoy wide support, especially from working class voters of all races, but- do we have a model from American history, Robert Kennedy, um, a, a populist on the left? I know that uh, Thomas Frank, whose work I know you know very well, um, writes quite nostalgically about pre-First World War American populism. Or are there contemporary yeah. politicians or thinkers who somehow capture what we need? Um, I, I also have a weakness for the New Deal and for the progressive era of the early 20th century that uh, and the populist era that just preceded it. Those were all great periods of reform. Bobby Kennedy was maybe the last politician who really could speak to the working class of both races um, as a, as a, a single uh, united America. It's hard to do it today. The working class is really divided. Trump has captured a great deal of the white working class in a, with a rhetoric that demonizes others. Um, I think, weirdly enough, the effigy you described, Joe Biden, maybe by an accident of history, maybe because suddenly we wanted someone kind of familiar and colorless, he seems to have a knack for speaking to all of us, for speaking to us as Americans, patriotically, and yet not ignoring um, the inequalities, the unfairness, the wrongs in American life, and making us feel as if we have to do it together. It may all be 4th of July pie in the sky, but we need a president who can talk to us that way, the way Franklin Roosevelt did. There was one group alone that Roosevelt demonized, and those were what he called the economic royalists. I wish Biden would demonize the economic royalists a little bit more, the billionaires who don't pay taxes. Um, because they're a good foil um, for what I think is the the right domestic policy. Instead, the demagogues like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, uh, who really don't have anything to offer to most ordinary Americans other than culture war rhetoric, they use these foils. But I think Biden, oddly enough, just by some twist of fate, to quote Bob Dylan, um, is the is the president we need right now? I hope he can get his agenda through. It, it's pretty tough. The obstacles are are almost insurmountable, but I I think he's at least pointing us in the right direction. Well, just as we need Joe Biden, we need George Packer, always the best analyst of America. George, I can't resist calling you George Unpacker because you do unpack America, as always, in an excellent way. This new book, Last Best Hope, America in Crisis and Renewal, is simultaneously 
optimistic and critical. It's simultaneously backward-looking and forward-looking. It's exactly the kind of book we need on a sunny June afternoon in 2021. At least I got my dates right, George. Yes. I know you are in Brooklyn. You're kind of stuck inside. Um, uh, I'm in San Francisco, kind of stuck inside in these uh, last days of COVID or sort of almost last days of COVID. Uh, what else should people be reading in these strange times, George, in addition to yeah. uh, Last Best Hope? I always want to be reading good fiction while I'm writing just to have good language, good prose in my head. And usually that means, for me, fiction by dead writers. So I'm reading um, The Golden Notebook by Doris Lessing at the moment, mm. which is uh, she was a Nobel Prize winner, but is not well enough known today any longer. It's a great book about politics and sex and class and all the things that we love to talk about. And it's um, of its moment, the 50s, but it's also really speaks to us today. I just finished a really interesting book about Nixon called King Richard that mm. just puts you into his day by day world in the months when Watergate began to consume Who's him. Who's it by? I need to get that on the... Is it a yeah. new book? Yeah, a new book. Michael Dobbs, who's... Mm. Uh, I had, um, I had uh, what's it, uh, Nixon's uh, Reagan land. I had Perlstein on the show. Who's Perlstein, the yeah. So, who's a, so I need uh, to get this guy. A really lively writer. This, this just feels like a novel. You are so close to Nixon and his inner circle that you're just watching them put down their coffee cup and slam their hand on their desk and yell about. So it's just incredibly intimate. And then a book that I haven't yet read, but I want to read because I feel like it's very much in sync with Last Best Hope is When the Stars Begin to Fall by Theodore Johnson, who is a former military officer. And it's about race and America and renewing the promise of America. It's very much- yeah, And we didn't even talk about race. And I know, I, I didn't mean to gloss over that. That could be uh, enough for another show. George Packer, as always, an honor and a pleasure. Author of Last Best Hope, essential reading, essential voice. A man who has perhaps four feet in each of the four camps in America, or certainly four eyes seeing those camps. Thank you so much, George. Keep well, and we'll have you back on the show in the not too distant future. Thank you so much, Andrew. I always enjoy it.